So hello and welcome to the uh, podcast edition of ANC's Matters of Fact. I'm your host, uh, Christian Esguera. This week, we're joined by attorney uh, Jenny Domino. She's uh, a legal advisor at the International Commission of Jurists, and she's now working in Myanmar. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode, uh, attorney Domino. Thank you so much for having me, Christian. Okay, first, uh, what do you do with the ICJ and uh, what, what is the ICJ all about? So the ICJ is a Geneva-based NGO promoting the spread of uh, rule of law and human rights around the world. It was established in 1952 and currently it operates in various regions. We have an Africa office, an Asia office, a Latin America office, and a Europe office. So in this case, you are uh, at present assigned in Myanmar. And what exactly do you do there? So I am one of the Myanmar legal advisors. So I work with government institutions and civil society, helping them integrate human rights standards uh, in Myanmar legislation. In, and also I analyze Myanmar laws that are not compliant with human rights. As you know, Myanmar became a democratic uh, uh, government. Myanmar had, a, had its first democratic form of government in 2015. With the, with the elections at that time. Okay. So it's been under a lot of period of transition and we're helping them integrate rule of law and human rights here. Definitely have a lot of work to do there in Myanmar. Uh, now for this, uh, for this week's episode, we're actually going to talk about uh, something very important which affects millions of people, including I think an estimated 44 million Filipinos who are on Facebook. Uh, I'm talking about the Facebook Oversight Board. Now, before we go to that, uh, I understand that the ICJ issued a statement regarding the guilty verdict on uh, Maria Ressa. She's the uh, CEO of uh, news website Rappler and also uh, the former researcher of Rappler uh, was found guilty of uh, cyber libel. So, so how does the ICJ uh, see this, this, uh, this, uh, this case against uh, Rappler? So first of all, the ICJ is seeing this from a human rights lens and not from a Philippine, not strictly from a Philippine law perspective, but it's nonetheless important for our, the Philippine legal system because the Philippines has ratified many of these key human rights instruments. For example, we have ratified the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights in 1986. So, you know, we've been a part of this international legal system for the longest time. Now, having said that, um, the, the ICJ views this case as an affront to freedom of expression. First of all, uh, we, have, we have always advocated against, decrimin- against uh, criminalizing libel. So under international human rights law, defamation offenses, libel offenses should not even incur an imprisonment penalty, should not even be criminalized. The alternative should be a civil uh, civil liability. So, for example, the imposition of fines. Mm. And even then, human rights uh, law provides that in the imposition of fines, the fines should not be unduly excessive, right? Mm. So, that's the premise where we're coming from. Now, in 2012, when the Philippines enacted the Cybercrime Prevention Act, there is a provision there that imposes. Um, a penalty one degree higher than the applicable penalty under the revised penal code, right? Mm. And at that time, the uh, 
the UN human rights bodies even commented and criticized again how this actually worsens the environment, the legal, you know, the legal framework for libel in the Philippines. So instead of, you know, making, decriminalizing libel, it has become worse. Mm -hmm. And you know, with this judgment now um, issued the other day, it even makes it worse. So we've gone a step further in making it worse by expanding the prescriptive period for mm -hmm. online libel and by expanding the definition of pub of the publication requirement for libel. The publication. Yes. And I think uh, that was one of the most contentious issues regarding that particular ruling, whether the prescriptive period uh, would actually be 12 years and not one year uh, based on the revised penal code, which penalizes uh, uh, libel. And I think the contention is that this is not a new crime that was included in the new law. I'm talking about libel. Yes. So in the... so. In 2012, when the Cybercrime Prevention Act was enacted, um, there was a constitutional challenge uh, soon after uh, in, the, in our Philippine Supreme Court challenging the constitutionality of the law. And in 2014, the Supreme Court held that um, there, they held certain provisions constitutional, some were unconstitutional, but for purposes of our discussion today, what's important to um, raise here is that the Supreme Court in that decision said uh, that cyber libel under the Cyber Crime Prevention Act is not a distinct offense mm -hmm. from libel under the Revised Penal Code. It's simply a different way of committing the crime, but it's not a new and separate crime. And it's, uh, it's quite silent when it comes to the prescriptive period. So I think the DOJ decided to apply an old law, a pre-war uh, act, we yes. make sure that that would be covered in terms of 12 years uh, of uh, prescription. Yes, and actually that's also one of the focus um, of, our, of the ICJ statement yesterday, that um, between, so the Cybercrime Prevention Act is ambiguous, right, in terms of the prescriptive period. It doesn't say what, um, what the prescriptive period is for the offenses under that law. And so you have now two interpretations, right? One is you apply the one-year prescriptive period for ordinary libel. Um, and there's a basis for applying that based on the Supreme Court ruling in 2014 saying that cyber libel is not a new way of, it's not a new crime. Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand, you have an interpretation that was eventually adopted by the RTC judge saying that the 12-year prescriptive period applies. Now, it's a fundamental um, uh, principle of criminal law that any ambiguity in criminal laws should be resolved in favor of the accused. And we have incorporated that principle in our constitutional and criminal law system. And it's really unfortunate that um, the judge later on um, opted for the latter option instead of the first one, which would be more in keeping with protecting the rights of the accused. What are the dangers that you see regarding this uh, particular interpretation by the judge of the prescriptive period? Because a lot of people are getting concerned. Things that you post now or you posted before, uh, for example, in Facebook, might be covered by the Cybercrime Prevention Act because of this interpretation. 
but yeah, the danger there is that instead of, so imagine if, you know, if we were in the 90s, if you write something, then the, and it, you know, and someone, this, someone is offended and uh, sees it as defamatory, then that person can bring the complaint, the criminal complaint within a one year period. But now on Facebook, you can, or other media platforms, you can bring the case within a period of 12 years. So that is really dangerous. And um, we, we will see how, how it goes. Okay, now speaking of uh, Facebook, we know that uh, Facebook uh, is facing uh, its own set of uh, problems uh, in terms of uh, whether to regulate content, uh, how to promote free speech in the process, I understand that there's now a uh, Facebook oversight board that, that, that has just been created. Uh, let's talk about this. Is this already operational, the FOB? So right now, as we speak, the oversight board is setting itself up, and I think it will start to be operational later this year. And this is based where? Um, I'm not sure, actually. Um, they haven't really said, if you look at their website, there's no address yet <laughs> uh, for the oversight board. And I, and I imagine COVID-19 will make it harder for them. Okay. I do think that some of them, some of the offices will be based in the U.S. or in the U.K. Yeah. So what exactly uh, will the FOB uh, do and what can it do? Let's talk about the, before we talk about the limits of what it cannot do. What can the FOB do, the Facebook Oversight Board? So the Oversight Board can decide hard cases of content moderation issues on Facebook and Instagram. Now that's uh, a one sentence statement, but there's a lot to unpack there. Um, first is it can only remove specific content on Facebook and Instagram. And even then, that kind of content must pass a set of criteria to be imposed by the oversight board. So you can imagine through these filters that only the hardest, most difficult cases can come up before the oversight board. Okay, before we uh, proceed, I think uh, we also need to uh, inform our viewers or our listeners uh, why you're so much into this issue, the Facebook oversight board. Uh, this is yeah. part of your thesis, your study at Harvard. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so actually, I, my entry point in this, um, in this field is based uh, on my incitement to violence research uh, back when I was doing my master's at Harvard Law School. And um, from there, I went to Myanmar because that, at that time in 2017, 2018, there was a lot of hate speech uh, concerning the Rohingya crisis that we now know of. And um, I went here to Myanmar really to, you know, see for myself firsthand um, what, I, what I have studied in theory. Mm -hmm. so, and from, so when I was here, I worked for Article 19, a freedom of expression NGO. And, um, ah, oh, by the way, a lot, some of the former Article 19 officers are now part of the oversight board. Administration, uh, yes. Um, so, and then after Article 19, I just kind of stayed here in Myanmar. And actually, right now for the ICJ, um, my one of my areas of work is still on hate speech uh, against ethnic and religious uh, groups. 
especially with respect to the coming Myanmar elections. So it's been a trajectory that started off from my uh, research at Harvard and then just now I'm doing it in practice. But since a lot of these, you know, new areas, you know, new issues of hate speech circulate online, you know, from the time that I started researching on this in 2016, you can't, I can't, you know, Facebook is, you know, an inevitable, has been an inevitable part of my research. And the, you've seen firsthand how the platform could be misused to attack certain people. So in, in particular, yeah. you're talking about hate speech uh, in Myanmar. Now, what ex how exactly can the Facebook Oversight Board help? So um, the Facebook Oversight Board can help by, well, first, uh, it can provide a sense of legitimacy and public reasoning, as one scholar put it. Um, she, uh, the Facebook Oversight Board, I think, sorry, uh, one of the one of the criticisms um, of Facebook um, in the past few years was that Facebook was making all these important speech issues by itself. And so in late 2018, Mark Zuckerberg decided to create an oversight board independent of Facebook, mm -hmm. you know, to decide hard some of these questions. Because, you know, according to Zuckerberg, this is not something that he or Facebook should decide. Um, so that's the main role, I think, of the oversight board to provide a body, a body that would decide on speech issues as a collective. And Facebook, the management, the executives would have to implement any decision coming out of yeah. the Facebook oversight board. So can this be seen as uh, Mark Zuckerberg's way of somehow sharing responsibilities not just power when it comes to a huge platform, uh, which I think uh, has uh, has around, I think, 2 billion people, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, I think so. It's, it's his way of offloading uh, responsibility and but, also criticism, but, if, uh, shifting the blame, I guess. But, but in the first place, how, how are we supposed to see Facebook as a platform uh, today? Because some people are saying it should be now considered as a public utility, not just uh, a privately run company where people come together. Because we've seen how this has evolved over the years. And we've seen the dangers as well as the benefits. So, yes, there is a lot of debate going on about this in the States, actually, as we speak, uh, specifically on Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act in the U.S. Um, Honestly, um, I'm not sure myself because, you know, there's a lot of, there's, there's still a lot of things we don't know about the way the platforms work, right? So at this point, for me, it, well, first of all, you know, companies should also respect human rights under the international legal system. Mm -hmm. You know, companies are not, you know, they, they don't exist in a void. So, under the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights, they have the responsibility to respect human rights. Now, whether or not we should treat them as a public utility or as a publisher, um, I would reserve my judgment on that because I, I feel like there is still a lot of things we have yet to know about the way they work. But at this point, what I can guarantee is that we should 
ask for more transparency on the way they work. Because right now, if you notice the way they communicate with us, the way they uh, handle specific issues has so far has been pretty selective. Selective in terms of what? Uh, for example, in my case, I have uh, in case I have issues uh, regarding Facebook, where do I go? So, so th there are two questions there. And for me, selective in terms of they respond to issues that generate um, public scrutiny. So for example, Myanmar, Cambridge Analytica, right? Mm -hmm. Facebook, the, even the Facebook fake accounts in, in the Philippines to one or two weeks ago, right? Mm -hmm. it, imagine, I can just imagine that if that didn't generate enough publicity, it wouldn't even be, you know, we wouldn't even know what, how Facebook would handle it. And actually up to now, do we know how, you know, there's still a lot of things we don't know about this issue. They said um, they would investigate the fake accounts, but I think we haven't heard from Facebook since. Yes. Um, regarding your second question, what, what, is, what, what is it about again? In terms of transparency, for example, I have issues regarding uh, mm -hmm. something that was posted about or against me. I know that there are community standards, but uh, is the process actually clear? Um, so, Yes. It, so, for example, if you see a post that you feel violates Facebook's community standards, you can report that, right? And then, you know, you undergo this process at the company level, on the Facebook level, where Facebook, Facebook's human content moderators decide if, you're, if the post should be taken down or not. And then, if you feel that if a user feels that you know the post should not even be removed so okay for example you complained about my post right you you felt let's say you felt that my post violated hate the hate speech policy or the misrepresentation policy of facebook you reported my post to facebook mm -hmm. facebook at the company level the human content moderators of facebook decide to remove my post i'm the aggrieved so me now it's my turn now to complain, right? So if I think that the removal of my post was not warranted, I could take that up to the oversight board, provided that it meets certain criteria. Mm -hmm. So so there's a process. Uh, so basically, the arbiters would be the uh, uh, human content, uh, what do you call them, managers or? Moderators. Moderators. So they moderate this, uh, these dispute, uh, disputes among so members. Yes, uh, so Facebook, um, Facebook detects content through its algorithms and through its human content moderators. So but, it's, a, it's a mix. But aside from the reporting process, because uh, for example, let's say I don't want to talk to a machine. Can I talk to someone, an actual person from Facebook, and uh, expound more on my, 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 my complaint, for example? Oh yes, if you report, the, if you report a post, then I think it's a human content moderator that would um, decide or would review the case. But I'm not sure if there is, um, I don't think there is a, a personal interaction, you know? So if, if you look at the, the controls, you know, you, you can choose like how, which, which uh, community standards you think is violated by this post, and then they get back to you. And you can chat with Facebook. Okay. You, you basically can chat with them. But we know that there are uh, 
Uh, you're about to say something. <laughs> I well, I'm not sure if you can chat with them. I haven't. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. So, so when does the uh, Facebook Oversight Board uh, step in? You mentioned that uh, it will be in charge of the most difficult cases. Yes. So right now, um, the bylaws provide that the Facebook's found uh, the Oversight Board's founding documents provide that. Um, the Oversight Board has jurisdiction to look at cases that were, first of all, removed from Facebook and Instagram. And second, these cases will only involve individual pieces of content. So Facebook posts, status posts, for example, pictures, videos, comments um, posted on either your post or someone else's post. It doesn't cover uh, yet, it doesn't cover yet, um, groups, uh, pages, advertisements, mm -hmm. um, events, etc. But the, the founding documents provide that sometime in the future, in the unknown future, we don't know when, the oversight board can have jurisdiction over those things. So they can expand their responsibilities or powers in that regard. But yes. I understand that Facebook, the company, has its own process based on its own uh, community standards and you have the separate independent uh, Facebook Oversight Board. Now, how do you define hard cases, really? Can, can we cite the uh, examples here? Yes. So, the, so there are two ways to go to the Oversight Board. First is if the aggrieved user is not happy with the Facebook content moderator's decision to remove the post, and that user decides to bring it up to the board. The second way of going up to the board is Facebook directly referring a matter to the board. Mm -hmm. So in this second uh, mode, there is no user, the user, it's not the user who reports, it's Facebook itself. Now, right now, as we speak, I I'm imagining that the Facebook Oversight Board is developing criteria to choose cases that are difficult and significant enough that it should look at. So under the founding documents, um, the Oversight Board is mandated to come up with a case selection criteria. So this case selection criteria is something that we would have to wait and see what it, what it includes. But what do you think? Uh, what, what, what should that include when you talk about the hard or the most difficult cases? Because I can yeah. imagine it won't delve into uh, every little complaint that you see on Facebook. You have to talk about really the hard cases. Yeah, so the founding documents uh, of the Oversight Board, uh, they provide that the Oversight Board can only look at the significant and difficult cases. So significance, there are, you know, in order to assess significance, you can look at the large scale of users involved, um, of a, you know, involved in a certain post, the impact on public discourse, and the real world impact as well. So for example, in for example, if there is a post that violates Facebook's um, misrepresentation policy or false information policy, then, and we know that, and, may, and the post is likely to affect, you know, elections or hate speech against a protected minority or ethnic group, then that's real world impact that the Facebook Oversight Board can decide. But what, I, what I'm saying right now is the Oversight Board is developing 
criteria on you know that would further further articulate what difficult means what significant means mm-hmm. and uh, this is expected to be operational by uh, later this year later this year so you mentioned elections that is very important specifically here in the Philippines I think the Philippines has been described as uh, patient zero uh, in terms of misinformation and I think yes. we're actually in, uh, exporting our our experts quote unquote uh, on misinformation so that they can also somehow share the uh, <laughs> the tools of the trade in other countries in Southeast Asia. For example, elections. We know that uh, there's a lot of concern regarding how Facebook uh, had been used to manipulate public sentiment and perhaps uh, gather supporters to a particular candidate. Uh, how exactly can the FOB, the Facebook Oversight Board, address something like this? A very specific issue regarding fake information uh, during campaigns? Well, I think at this point, it would be hard to assess how they would decide a case, right? But I think what's important to highlight here is that the Facebook Oversight Board will apply as legal basis for their decision, Facebook's community standards and values, and to a lesser extent, human rights law. Mm -hmm. And that is very important. And in fact, that has been um, what most scholars working on this field have criticized Facebook for in the past few years, that Facebook is applying its own set of norms, its own set of laws, you can call it, and not international human rights law. So is it also correct to, So I, I think some people have described the uh, Facebook Oversight Board as some sort of a Supreme Court. Uh, is that exactly accurate? So, Uh, Not exactly. Um, So the Facebook Oversight Board also has the power to issue policy advisory statements. Mm -hmm. So what what is a policy advisory statement? For example, it can recommend that, you know, based on this case, some portion of the community standards should be amended or should be changed. That portion of the decision, so a while while ago, I I said that, um, the decision, the judgment of the oversight board will be binding on Facebook, right? So that only applies to the particular issue and case mm-hmm. with the user involved. Mm-hmm. So if the content should be kept up, it will. Facebook has no choice but to allow the post to stay up. If the Facebook oversight board decides that it should be the post should be removed, then Facebook has no choice but to remove the post. They have the final but state. Yes, they have the final say with respect to that particular case concerning that particular user. But if that decision, for example, contains a policy advisory statement saying, we think that, you know, based on this decision, the misrepresentation policy of Facebook's community standards should be amended this this way, X, Y, Z, or, you know, the hate speech policy of Facebook's community standards should be changed this like this or like that. That portion, uh, that advisory statement, is not binding on Facebook. Okay, it's advisory. So that is very clear. It's advisory, yes. And in that sense, it dif- it, it's very different from a court, right? Because mm-hmm. a court can only decide on cases with respect to concrete justiciable issues before it. Okay, so you have the Facebook Oversight Board and you have the internal mechanisms of Facebook itself, the company. What if uh, I don't agree with the final decision of the uh, Facebook Oversight Board? Of course, I can go to the courts, right? Um, yes, 
Yes and no. So here's the interesting overlap between, um, and it's good that you brought this up, Christian, because it really raises a lot of interesting um, questions. So, you know, you can take up a post even before the oversight board rules on something. If, if there is local legislation on that particular issue, right? So for example, if you have legislation regulating false information, you know, you can take it up in a, in, in a court of law, in, in, in the domestic courts. Mm. Um, so in that sense, um, the oversight board will not even be, or Facebook itself will not even be involved there. And actually, Facebook, Facebook and the oversight board differ to local laws. So for example, if, the, if local authorities contact Facebook and say, can you take this down because under Philippine law, let's say it violates or uh, yeah, it violates or we, see, we think that this constitutes incitement to terrorism or you know, false information that is against uh, the Bayanihan Act, for example, then Facebook has to defer to that judgment. It will not interfere. So, yeah, so Facebook can only um, involve itself in content issues where local authorities don't step in. Okay, so that is clear. But uh, does Facebook have enough people to actually validate uh, certain requests, like the one that you mentioned? That, for example, I go to Facebook, take this down because this violates our uh, law. I cite a specific law. But Facebook, does it have enough people to validate my claim? I think so. Uh, in fact, Facebook uh, releases uh, transparency reports per quarter, I think. So, yeah, they release transparency reports per quarter on government requests for content takedown. Mm -hmm. They so, also have a report on data requests. But let's say I don't agree with the final decision of the Facebook Oversight Board, which of course you said was binding, is binding, and actually mm -hmm. executed by Facebook, the company. Let's say I felt that I was injured by that particular decision. I can go to the court, right? But uh, let's talk about the dynamics between the, the actual courts and the Facebook Oversight Board in terms of decisions. So I'm not, so it's, it's not necessarily that, you know, you, the Oversight Board rules on something and then you can take it up with the court because you have to remember that Facebook's community standards and value, they're not a state, right? So mm -hmm. the, the speech, that, the, the kind of content that they regulate is in a way broader than what a state regulates. So if you look at their community standards, they have a policy on bullying, they have a policy on cruel and insensitive comments, they have a policy on harassment. So these are things that Facebook can legitimately do because they just want to ensure that their community is safe from cruel and insensitive remarks and bullying and harassment. So there are areas of speech, there are kinds of content that Facebook um, regul mod regulates, moderates on their platform. That's, that the state law, that is not exactly a violation of local laws. Hmm. Am I making myself clear? Yeah, uh, I, I get it. But for example, in this case, uh, for example, during election campaigns, uh, let's say a politician decided to uh, unleash 
his army of supporters who decided to share and post so many things which other parties found objectionable or outright misinformation. And then, and then let's say this went through the process uh, at Facebook, the company, and that particular decision, let's say, was favored by the Facebook Oversight Board. And here I am, let's say, the, the politician, the, the candidate, uh, let's say, decide to go to the court. Uh, and, and argue that uh, this decision by the Facebook Oversight Board actually affected my chances during the campaign. If in case there's such a policy in that particular country regarding this particular uh, incident, can that actually uh, happen? Or is that a possibility? The possibility is quite broad. I mean, the, the, uh, can you also foresee something like this? I mean, people won't yeah. necessarily agree 100% to, to whatever the FOB would say. Yes, I think so. I think Facebook can definitely regulate actors on the platform for, you know, for coordinated inauthentic behavior, violating misrepresentation, their misrepresentation policy. And the oversight board can definitely uh, rule on that. But yeah, so what I'm, I, I guess what I'm trying to say here is that the reasons for Facebook to moderate certain kinds of speech would be different from, let's say, how a state would do it, mm. right? And so that is, so imagine a Venn diagram where there's like an overlap in one small portion, but not necessarily in the whole thing. Mm. So they don't, it's not a perfect fit, mm. but it's important that you raise this because it just goes to show, it highlights how our speech is moderated in a way by these two actors, state and company, like non-state actors. Now let's talk about the composition of the Facebook Oversight Board. I understand that uh, basically everyone is uh, supposed to be re represented in terms of regions, right? Uh, is it actually the case in terms of representation? Yeah, um, it's really interesting the way um, representation is, well, as you know, last month, the Facebook Oversight Board um, appointed 20 members um, representing various regions uh, of the world. And it's interesting because Facebook itself divided the world into several geographic blocks. So for example, Asia is divided into two. There's Central and South Asia, and there's Asia Pacific and Oceania. So, um, and then there's U.S. and Canada, Latin America, Europe, etc. So it's interesting how the new set of appointments kind of reflect how diversity, how our perceptions of difference and diversity inform, inform how representation should be, how representation should look like uh, on a global body such as the Oversight Board. Is it fair or... I think that, so first of all, um, under the founding documents, uh, the oversight board can have a maximum of 40 members in total and a minimum of 11. So right now we have 20. What, what this means is that um, the oversight board is not required to go beyond the 20 set of members because the minimum is only 11. The good news is I think Facebook and the oversight board do want to appoint more members in the future. I think sometime later this year or early next year. So they want um, 20, okay. 
right now it's 20 members. I think that uh, the appointments are a good start, but ultimately it lacks representation from Southeast Asia. And I, I think that given, the, given Facebook's outsized presence here in the region, Southeast Asia deserve, deserves more representation. Hopefully they could correct it with the next 20 appointments. When you say more representation, are, are you talking of, uh, let's say, one, two, or more uh, representatives uh, of one particular region? Because at this point, I think there's one from Southeast Asia. The journalist from Indonesia, right? So yes. you're saying there has to be more? Yes, I think so. I think there has to be more from Southeast Asia. So just to go back a little bit, I did say that uh, Facebook divided Asia into two, right? So there's Central and South Asia and then there's Asia Pacific and Oceania. There are currently two members in under the Central and South Asia block. So we have one from Pakistan and we have one from India there. But because Facebook deemed it important enough to separate Central and South Asia, I think it's only fair and logical not to include those appointments in our assessment of representation, right? For Asia Pacific and Oceania. And for Asia Pacific and Oceania, you have one from Taiwan, one from Australia, and Andy Bayun, the, the journalist from Indonesia. So in, I think that the board lacks representation from Asia Pacific and Oceania, and particularly Southeast Asia, given the outsized presence of Facebook here. If you look at the data from 2019, four of the Southeast Asian countries top the global charts on social media usage around the world. So this has been pretty consistent. The top, uh, top uh, social media users in the world are Filipinos. We spend an average of four hours per day on social media, and we know that Facebook is that social media platform. <laughs> so there should I be think, a Filipino there. I think it doesn't have to be a Filipino. But someone... But I, Philippines. But someone from Southeast Asia. From Southeast Asia. From but Southeast Asia. I, I understand the initial batch of, uh, the initial members of the board were chosen by, by Facebook itself, right? Uh, yes. What, what were the criteria used? How did they identify these people to represent certain particular countries in a certain region? Um, I'm not uh, entirely um, familiar, but I know I know that they did look at the professional integrity and competence and excellence of the people uh, who were eventually appointed. And if you look at their profiles, they have really good, competent, excellent profiles, people of integrity. So I, I really have no comment on, on that front. In fact, some of the people appointed are really known digital rights advocates, longtime feminist activists. So respected constitutional lawyers. So, you know, I have nothing to say uh, against uh, their profiles. There just has to be more. <laughs> You're calling for There me. just has to be more. Because, you know, Christian, we, I forgot to mention this, but out of the 20 members of the board, five are from the U.S., five are Americans. Mm. And under the founding documents of the board, the geographic block, involving the U.S. is actually U.S. and Canada. So if you look at it, there's really no representation from Canada, right? Because five of them are from the States. 
And I think what's even inter more interesting here is that most of the appointments from the U.S. Um, involve lawyers or free speech experts. Now, what does that say about you know the kind of expertise that the that Facebook values when it with respect to freedom of expression? If all the lawyers that you're that that if most of the lawyers that you appoint to the board are lawyers from the states, mm -hmm. and you know if you're an international lawyer, you know, or even a student of international law, you would very well know that the way lawyers apply international standards, international human rights law, they differ depending on the lawyer's socialization and legal system. So for example, if I'm a lawyer from the Philippines, the way I understand and apply and interpret human rights law will be different, of course, from let's say someone who studied law and trained law in China or Russia or, or Kenya or Taiwan, you know, the way as people, right? Even, and I, and, I, and I don't think this only applies to lawyers. I think this also applies to most professionals, right? The way we understand things will inevitably be uh, influenced by our environment. You're, you're talking about the worldview, which is, uh, uh, which is of course, uh, understandable. But, but in this case, you're talking of uh, different members of the board who will be deciding on specific cases under their jurisdiction. I'm curious about the, the context uh, with which uh, they are supposed to understand the issues. For example, here in Southeast Asia, you have an Indonesian. Uh, but of course, you know that there are many different facets or contexts involved in one particular post. For example, in the mm -hmm. Philippines, we may not even be able to understand the context coming from our own jurisdiction. What more if you present this before uh, a board member who's an outsider? H how is that addressed uh, in the mechanisms of the Facebook Oversight Board? So under the founding documents, the board panel deciding a particular case can get the opinion of an expert. So the board uh, would welcome um, expert submissions. And this includes country context. This includes um, linguistics. You know, this includes translation and also um, anthropology you know, anthropological understandings of how certain content might be absorbed and accepted in a particular society. So, so they have that, uh, that, that, that leeway to actually uh, look for people, experts, to, to, to help them understand the context. Now, how long yes. is the process supposed to go? Let's say uh, a case was presented before the board. So under the founding documents, the board generally has 90 days to review a particular content, but the board, uh, the bylaws uh, also allow for an expedited review of 30 days. Mm -hmm. Now, whether that's uh, quick enough or, or slow enough, uh, that is very debatable because you know, you have, for example, hate speech. Mm -hmm. Do you really think 30 days is quick enough to take down hate speech in a, in a landscape, in a context where there is ongoing physical violence mm -hmm. uh, against uh, a targeted group, you know? So, but at the same time, it's also hard to say that it's very slow or it's very long because you also have a lot, you know, cases that require a lot of nuance. So mm -hmm. I think at this point, it's best to reserve a judgment and see how this unfolds. I would imagine that they would be very conscious of this kind of complication.
but the not to be too legalistic about it but uh, of course the common sense judgments can already be made by the uh, by the by the company itself right for more expeditious uh, action but we're talking here of the most difficult cases which the fast the fastest of which would be 30 days right yes that's the thing right so here we have we have to remember again that these are hard cases these are the most significant and difficult cases so yeah, I mean, if, if, the, if the content is a clear-cut issue, then Facebook wouldn't even bring it up. The user wouldn't even bring it up. Mm -hmm. So, again, I think we will have more idea as the board sets itself up and starts to receive cases uh, this year. Let's talk a bit about the, uh, the, the, the case of uh, Myanmar, the, the plight of the Rohingyas. Uh, I think this is one of the things that prompted uh, Mark Zuckerberg to once and for all institute something like this on this platform. Yeah. How bad was the, was the situation and uh, has it actually improved, uh, let's say from 2018 uh, up to now? I think it's definitely different now. The speech landscape is, not, is very different from the time, uh, you know, all of this exploded in 2018. But actually, so I arrived here in 2018. At that time, all of the, you know, all of the most all of these issues were dying down, dying down in the sense that it started as early as, you know, 2013, 2014, I think, around that time. So that's the problem, right, with a lot of these uh, speech issues. They start from the very beginning, and then it just explodes, you know, years late, a few years later. And then we would, we would just look back and, and think, oh, yeah, actually... We've seen this coming because, you know, as early as this year, there was already a, a lot of hate campaigns and whatever. And I think so now, you know, the crisis is still here. And in fact, you, you know, it's good that you asked me this question. What's really groundbreaking and unprecedented is that this Rohingya crisis has given way to at least, well, at least three, okay, four, four different international transnational um, mechanisms. So right now the Rohingya crisis um, has, the, the Gambia filed, um, filed a case against Myanmar before the International Court of Justice for Myanmar's alleged violation of the Genocide Convention. And what's really interesting to note here is that the Genocide Convention penalizes the crime of incitement to genocide, right? And um, another mechanism is the International Criminal Court. So there's a pending investigation phase concerning the Rohingya crisis, but with respect to Bangladesh at the International Criminal Court. And then you have a separate UN investigative mechanism focusing exclusively on Myanmar. And then you have a case filed in Argentina under the concept of universal jurisdiction, also concerning Myanmar. It's really interesting because, you know, this has never happened before. And Christian, it's, I think um, it's also good to emphasize here that last week, the Gambia filed a case in the DC courts against Facebook for discovery proceedings. So it asked, in the, in the, in the petition, the Gambia asked Facebook to provided with evidence 
that Facebook has data on social media posts of military figures mm -hmm. and government officials so that they could so that the Gambia could use it at the International Court of Justice case. It's and really interesting. It's an ongoing case and uh, has Facebook actually complied? Not yet. I'm not yet sure because I think well the news broke out last week, just last week. It's fairly recent. But, Very but in, recent. But in terms of the level of hate speech uh, all over Myanmar against the Rohingya, has it actually died down? Or has it been reduced somehow? Because of the mechanisms that were put in place by Facebook and because of these uh, international actions that you mentioned? I think, well, yeah, Facebook would uh, definite, definitely claim that they've been able to detect uh, more hate speech in the country. I think that is there hate speech still? The thing is, I, I'm not competent to answer that because I wasn't here uh, in, you know, during those years that all of that was coming to a head. And, but I can definitely say that now the hate speech is a lot more different. It's a, it has a different face than before. Just basing it on how other experts who have, you know, focused on Myanmar for the past 30 years mm -hmm. uh, have said. And when you say hate speech, uh, this is, uh, these are statements or posts coming not just from ordinary uh, people, but also from government officials themselves? Yes. That's why those statements carry a lot of weight. Yes. In fact, in 2018, um, Facebook suspended the account of the Myanmar commander-in-chief. Mm -hmm. So, that, again, that, that was... Um, that was one of the firsts, right? You have a private company suspending a commander-in-chief from its platform. And that was because of hate speech uh, from the top levels of government here in the country. I'll try to relate that uh, in the case of the Philippines for those of us, uh, for, for the Filipinos listening now. Uh, we know that there are certain complaints coming from leftist organizations held against, let's say, police officers, uh, members of the military who have been using on certain occasions their Facebook accounts, official Facebook accounts, to let's say uh, label certain people as terrorists, as communists. Uh, are, are these uh, somehow statements that could also fall under uh, what could be acted upon by the Facebook Oversight Board later on? Or is this something that should be settled at the level of the company? I think, well, it's hard to say. It depends on the post, right? It depends on the photo. It depends on the language used. So I think it will depend on, 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 this, you know, on a case-by-case -case, uh, basis. But yeah, this is something that they could decide if it meets the criteria that the oversight board um, sets, sets for case selection. Okay. Finally, uh, how is Facebook faring? I, I intend this question to be a bit general to give you more leeway to actually expound on it. Uh, we know that fake news is a very big problem, uh, but how has Facebook uh, fared so far in terms of trying to minimize uh, the spread of fake news based on lessons that we've learned, for example, in previous elections, in previous advocacies or campaigns? I think that... Um... Facebook has definitely gotten better <laughs> than 2018, right? Because, you know, there's, there has been a lot of public pressure. But I think they, they, they've also hired a human rights director. They've expanded their teams in Southeast Asia. So I think it, on that, in that sense, they've done uh, a good job. But 
at the end of the day, it's also about how Facebook as a company is respecting you know, their human rights responsibilities under international law. And, you know, I think we should, we should uh, bring it back to the, the Facebook fake accounts in the Philippines that happened about two weeks ago. Um, you know, things, transparency in, you know, communicating what really happened. At this point, we don't really know if it was a glitch. It definitely, I, I think it would, it would definitely qualify as some kind of security issue, right? I don't know if it's a strategic disinformation campaign. We don't have any evidence uh, yet to support that. It could just be a glitch, right? But what's clear to me is that Facebook should be transparent about the way it handles these matters. Their communication lines should be open. And they should also, I mean, they should also um, respond not just to things that generate a lot of publicity. And to be fair to them, I think they are. They are. Um, and I, I also do recognize that their job is not an easy one. But it's, it's the they've put themselves in that position, right? I mean, they're a global company. They're, so yeah, so they should just do their part because they've chosen to become that. And I think this is something, a lot of these uh, issues now, uh, I, I suppose they were not foreseen uh, by Facebook early on until uh, the, the, the platform became much bigger and they were, they were forced to grow up and to understand more when it comes to, let's say, human rights uh, issues uh, issues of equality, for example. So, because it's, this started as a private company, as a business, basically, uh, or this was established for fun at the very beginning. But of course, you need to understand that this has evolved so so much over the years. But, so here's the thing. So, under international law, you know, businesses, you know, have a human rights responsibility. They should have known this. So for so one concrete way, I I might be talking uh, in the abstract too much, but to give an example, before market entry, you know, businesses should conduct a human rights impact assessment. It's sort of like a, a due diligence, mm. making sure who are the stakeholders of my business operations, what kinds of harm can is you know possible in this environment. So it's a it's an assessment of the human rights impact of a company. Now, Facebook didn't do any of that um, in Myanmar, for example. I would imagine also in the Philippines. Mm. And, you know, they've since, if you noticed, um, they only commissioned a human rights impact assessment on Myanmar and some other uh, Southeast Asian countries like Cambodia and Indonesia in 2018. In, 20 after it received, in 2018, after it received international scrutiny from Cambridge Analytica, from the Rohingya crisis, you know, this... All of these are belated. Mm. So there are certain minimum requirements that I think a company should do. I understand that they have not foreseen the scale and influence of their platform. But, you know, under international human rights law, there are certain minimum things that you could have done to mitigate the harm that you've caused. And if they didn't do that at the beginning and uh, this uh, company ha has grown much larger than they could have anticipated. They're now playing a lot of catch up. Yes, and to be fair to them, I think they're doing their job and that's good. It's a good improvement, but more needs to be done. Okay, 
Well, thank you very much for your insights. Uh, it was a learning experience uh, for all of us, uh, to those who are listening to this podcast. Thank you very much, uh, Attorney Jenny Domino, for joining us on this week's uh, podcast. Thank you for having me. And that's it for this week's episode of Matters of Fact. I'm your host, Christian Esguera. If you like this show, leave us a review on uh, Apple Podcasts or share this episode on social media. It helps new listeners to find us. I'll see you again next week for another edition of ANC's Matters of Fact podcast. Thank you. Thank you.